I believe health is the greatest form of wealth we have, which is why I'm proud to be partnered with Brothers in Arms. Brothers in Arms is a wellness brand dedicated to working with veterans, first responders, and anyone on the front line. Through their education, support, and premium CBD products, they help alleviate and restore the lives of those that have been affected by physical and mental trauma. Learn about the life-changing benefits and power of CBD and join their community today. Links can be found on the MCP website and IG page. Hello everyone. Welcome to episode 40 of Multiple Calls. I'm Scott Hewlett. Homeostasis. Economic systems, the earth, our psychological and biological functions, and human interactions are all governed by it. Time scales may differ, but they are all constantly correcting to operate within an ideal range. Our choices or factors outside of our control influence the intensity of pendulum swings and short-term or lasting consequences from too long in an extreme state. We can visit our limits, but we can't live there, figuratively and literally. Whether or not you have immediate or eventual influence over the quality of sleep you receive each day, the benefits and risks don't change. We can't deny or ignore them. We are all towers of Jenga blocks. When it comes to first responders, Shift work is one of the most common claims made to excuse them from any responsibility to themselves or their loved ones for the state of their daily lives, but it isn't a necessary evil with an unavoidable reality. Thanks to those who have chosen to study this issue in depth, there is a better way forward. My guest this episode and his colleagues have made it their chosen profession and passion to bettering the lives of others through helping them achieve better sleep and recovery, especially seniors and first responders. Their training program, Surviving Shift Work, has been very successful in getting us back to feeling and being more human. And in honor of this episode, they're offering a 40% discount. Simply go to elitesleep.ca and use the code multiplecalls-2021. Full details in the episode description. Here's my talk with Glenn Landry. Hey, Glenn. Hey. I'm ready to go. I am looking forward to answering your questions and talking about my favorite subject. Well, let's start with what in your upbringing and academic path led you towards the work that you're currently doing. So it really started as a teenager because as a teenager, I just couldn't get to sleep at night when I was supposed to. You know, my parents were dutiful parents, did a great job, wanted me to be in bed early, 10, 1030. And I would try, I would go to bed and I just could not fall asleep. Eventually, I just learned that I wasn't going to fall asleep. And by about 11, 11, 15, my parents would be out. They slept really hard. So at that point, I would get up and I would do stuff. That was the best time for me to do studying or writing papers. And this is the time to watch TV or to go out. I wasn't the only teen that was having trouble. I would go out with my friends eventually realized that as long as I got back by 3.30, 4 o'clock, no one was the wiser. And so that became my routine where I would routinely be up uh, until 3.30, 4 o'clock, and then I would finally fall asleep. 
And that was a real problem for early morning awakenings. My parents would wake me up for 7.30. I'd get up and make like I was going to be getting ready for school. But really, I was just waiting for them to go off to work. And then I would just get back into bed. And eventually, I was able to schedule my class breaks and stuff in the mornings. And so I didn't really have to be functional until 11, 12. And then when I got into university, all of my courses were scheduled for later. I just figured that I was a night owl. The first life-changing moment, if you will, it came when I was introduced to Dr. Ralph Misselberger, world-renowned expert in circadian rhythms. I took a course from him, and then I joined his lab, and I learned all about circadian rhythms and sleep and how to take control of these circadian rhythms. So let me first define what that is. Circadian rhythms are daily biological rhythms. You can think of it as nighttime physiology, biology, and behavior, and we have daytime physiology, biology, and behavior, and we need to keep those separate in time because they're incompatible processes. And so that changed everything for me. I joined his lab, started studying sleep deprivation, studying circadian rhythms and really understanding the mechanisms and what drives these circadian rhythms. And I learned that my habits, what I had been doing was really turning my nights into days and my days into nights. And what I learned from the coursework and the studies is how to reverse that process so that I could get on the proper schedule. And that really began my lifelong interest in studying circadian rhythms and sleep. And then the second life-changing thing for me was after I had done my undergraduate and my honors degree doing research with Ralph, I was kind of burnt out from studies. And my plan was to, you know, take a break before pursuing my master's and my PhD. What we discovered is that my grandfather had Alzheimer's disease. And at the time he was living in Alberta with my grandmother and they moved back to BC to live with my parents because my grandmother had hidden it for a long time and the burden had really worn her down. And so my parents then took on the caregiver burden and I moved back to live with my parents to help with that. And that wasn't a very long journey. I would say that he was really with us for just over a year but discovered the impact on sleep health for an entire family with someone that has Alzheimer's disease. And so I learned how sleep is dramatically changed. Nearing the end, my grandmother had since passed. Caregiver burden was probably a major contributing factor there, but in the end, she died of congestive heart failure. And so that left grandpa in our house and you know, we kept looking for grandma and we eventually learned rather than telling him the truth about what had happened, because it was just a loop, you know, each morning he'd wonder where she was and then we'd go through the grieving process with him again and again and again. And eventually we figured out that the best approach for him was just to say that she had gone shopping. He'd forget about it for a bit. And so our days and our nights were all about caring for grandpa. And we actually had to take shifts because he had someone in bed with him sleeping. Then he wouldn't roam the house. But if he got up and nobody was there in bed with him, then he would leave. And so that disrupted the whole house and it was dangerous for him as well. So my dad and I would alternate shifts. And so one night he'd be in bed with them and then the next night I'd be in bed with grandpa. And what I came to observe is that, and I'm not exaggerating about this, every hour on the hour, he'd get up, come around, he'd tuck us in, give us a kiss on the cheek. And then if we were there, he'd get back into bed. 
And so he wasn't getting very much sleep at all. And either were we when we were doing this. So that became a driving force for me to look at aging, cognition, and sleep health as a function of promoting brain health. Once he had passed, I eventually went back and did my master's and my graduate work in Dr. Missenberger's lab. And then that really started the process of really looking at circadian regulation, understanding the importance of sleep health on cognitive health and aging. And then once I finished my PhD, I took that learning and the objective was how we could take the science and actually apply it for interventions that would promote sleep health for older adults and shift workers. That was the beginning of the journey in really studying sleep and what we need to do to protect sleep for older adults. If we're going to have a healthy, good quality of life, then we need to look at sleep health. Because one of the things we know is that sleep changes as a normal course of aging. And we've just accepted that. We've known it for decades, but we really haven't been doing anything about it. And my life's work now is getting the message out that yes, Sleep changes as we get older. That's a normal course of aging, but it need not be inevitable. There are things we can do to protect our sleep to promote better health. Much like loss of muscle mass, it doesn't have to be a significant drop off. If you're fit and healthier early in life and maintain that, it's going to be easier to maintain it as you get older. 100%. So it used to be we thought that we were born with a set of neurons and then you had to protect those neurons through your lifespan. You had the brain that you were born with and it was just a function of what you did with that brain. But we now know that even in our ninth decade, we're still capable of producing new neurons in particular brain regions that are really important for cognition and memory and that it's really use it or lose it. You have to protect your brain and getting a proper night's sleep is a key part of that. When I first started in the field, it took forever for me to really change the conversation. When I was working with experts in the field, the notion had always been, well, older adults don't need as much sleep because they're not doing as much. They're not learning as much. They're not growing. And so sleep changes as we get older, but that's normal because we don't need as much sleep. And that's patently false. Sleep does change as we get older, but it's something that you actually have to address. You really do need to focus on improving your sleep health so that you can maximize your overall health. A lot of the changes that are happening, and we should really define what those changes are, Let's start with the most obvious change. As you get older, and by older adult, I really mean 30 plus. So 30 to 50 is a young older adult, 50 to 70 is a middle older adult, and 70 plus are the real winners in life. This is a trajectory, if you will, but it begins with subtle changes. Like you notice that you're waking up more often, but you're able to get back to sleep. Maybe you're getting up to go pee now when before you used to be able to sleep the whole night without having to go pee. So then that gets worse. And over time, what you're finding is that you're waking up more often, but now you're having difficulty getting back to sleep. And the number one complaint for older adults is the inability to sustain sleep through the entire sleep window that entire night and being able to get a full eight hours of sleep. That's the number one complaint. And what happens is older adults, they tend to be able to fall asleep but then after three or four hours, they wake up and they can't get back to sleep. And that's the issue. It turns out that the key driver of that is circadian dysregulation. 
We now know from the consensus science, there's two key mechanisms that drive sleep. The first is a homeostatic mechanism. You can just think of that as the longer you've been awake, the greater your need for sleep. And that's pretty simple. But if that were the only mechanism that drove sleep need, then we'd have a very different lifestyle. We'd be up for a bit, and then we'd get tired and we'd sleep for a bit. And then that process would repeat itself. We'd end up with a very fragmented sleep-wake rhythm. So it turns out that that's exactly what happens in Alzheimer's disease. The individual is able to stay awake for a few hours, but then their waking day is interrupted by frequent bouts of sleep. And then at night, just as I described with my grandfather, the sleep window is interrupted by frequent bouts of awakenings. And so that's the issue, is that they're entirely homeostatic. They've got broken circadian rhythms. And the issue, remember again, is that there's daytime physiology, biology, and behavior, and nighttime physiology, biology, and behavior. And circadian rhythms make it so that we're programmed to have a 16-hour waking day that's unimpaired. And with the exception of an afternoon lull, think 1 p.m. to 4 p.m. kind of range, we're actually programmed to have a nap. So we find ourselves fatigued and dozy. And that's why people, you know, they're reaching for stimulants like caffeine or nicotine to get them through that afternoon lull. What they're missing is that that's actually a pre-programmed nap time. That's when we're supposed to have a brief afternoon nap. 45 minutes is kind of the sweet spot. should be timed properly to match that afternoon lull. And then the remainder of the evening and the remainder of the day, you're able to get through that day unimpaired, cognitively, I mean. And so that's daytime physiology. And then nighttime physiology is all of the programming to get a good night's sleep and repair the brain and growing new neurons and restoring the brain and the body, as well as processing the day's events and figuring out what needs to be remembered and what can be forgotten. A ton of things that sleep does that most people aren't getting. So understanding how sleep changes as we get older and then understanding exactly what we need to do to promote stronger circadian regulation so that we're able to get that full night's sleep. So recently I started wearing a whoop strap. I had been using a sleep app before. It was okay, but I'm finding the whoop straps much more detailed, so I'm getting better metrics. When we say get a full night's sleep, and I guess correct me if I'm wrong, what I'm understanding now is that it's normal to be up enough times through the night in a healthy adult where you actually lose an hour every night of sleep time. I would agree with that, that that's a good rough estimate. But the important thing is to actually have objective measurement. So you're using the Whoop, and we don't have shares in the company, but we recommend the Fitbit for its sleep stages. I've been working with that product line for close to a decade now. And I find that the sleep stages data that Fitbit provides is predictive. It's not perfect, and none of these wearables are perfect, but it gives you coaching input over time. So you can use change over time to see that the intervention is being followed and you're seeing the change in the sleep health over time. So that's the first step is really understanding what your sleep looks like. And let's be clear about what sleep health is. So it's not just how many hours you spend sleeping. And it's definitely not just the amount of hours you spend in bed trying to sleep. Because as you just pointed out, you're not actually sleeping that entire time that you're in bed. It's normal to have awakenings throughout the night. 
But more importantly, it's about the sleep architecture. And by that, I mean the staging of the sleep. You want to be able to fall asleep easily. And within, you know, a few minutes of falling asleep, you want to get into what is commonly called deep sleep, slow wave sleep. That's the sleep that washes the brain. The brain's like an engine. It's producing exhaust in our waking day. And that exhaust needs to be washed away in order to have proper brain health. And that's actually one of the contributors or leading causes of Alzheimer's disease is that waste, the metabolites that accumulate around the neurons. If they're not washed away, those neurons get choked off and eventually they die off and they get removed. And that literally leaves potholes, if you will, in our brain. And so that's a decades-long process. The brain is remarkably complex, and it's capable of compensating for many, many years. But eventually, you use up all of that resource, and the brain is no longer able to compensate. And that's when you begin to see noticeable impairments, objectively measured impairments in cognitive health. So key point is getting deep sleep early to wash the brain. And then we cycle through these other stages throughout the night. And roughly speaking, there's a 90-minute cycle from non-REM sleep, so that's stages two, three, and four, light sleep and deep sleep, and then into something called REM sleep that most people are aware of. That's what we commonly associate with dreaming. REM is just rapid eye movement sleep, but it's a dream state of sleep. And that's a really important state a ton of consolidation of learning and memory that's happening during that time. REM plays a key role in processing traumatic events and removing the negative emotion that's associated with that new learning event so that in the future, when something happens that triggers that event, that memory, you don't have all of the emotional flood, if you will, the adrenaline response to triggering that memory because it's been processed. REM has processed that negative emotion out of the new learning. So just one example of what REM sleep does. Light sleep is also really important. So that's stage two sleep. It's critical for muscle memory and for going through the day and sort of prioritizing what needs to be remembered and what can be dismissed. We're inundated with a ton of information every day and some things we need to remember and prioritize and other things we can forget. And so the important thing to understand here is that sleep architecture and the proper staging of sleep is a key metric of sleep health. You know, you want to wash your brain and then use that well-washed brain to consolidate learning and memory and process trauma and build resilience and do all of those other things. So getting back to what you had said, having objective measurement of your sleep gives you insight into what that architecture looks like. You need to go beyond just thinking in terms of, well, I got seven hours of sleep, so I must be good. What kind of sleep did you get? Did you get the right sleep architecture? Yeah, I'll notice when say I was awake for over an hour through that night, I'm foggier the next day. If I got a short amount of deep sleep in total, or if I didn't go through enough cycles. So we talked a little bit about that when I said that there are these 90-minute cycles where we cycle from non-REM into REM sleep and then back into non-REM. That continues through the night. And what you really want to shoot for is four to five REM cycles. And what you'll notice if you've got really good sleep architecture is that in the beginning of the sleep window, let's break it into two halves. In the first half, 
your non-REM time is spent predominantly in something called deep sleep or slow wave sleep. That's the washing the brain, you're growing new neurons, you're restoring muscle and bone tissue. Think of that as a growth stage and a restoration stage. And that is alternating with brief bouts of REM in that first half. But in the second half, things really change. And what you see is that non-REM time is spent mostly in something called stage two, which is light sleep. And let's be clear, light sleep is a misnomer. It doesn't mean poor sleep. It just means that it doesn't take as much to wake someone out of that level of sleep as opposed to something like deep sleep, for example. So the key there is that in the back half, you're alternating between light non-REM sleep and REM sleep. And your REM bouts are much longer and they increase as we get into the back half and the later stage of our sleep window. In fact, the longest bouts of REM are actually tied to something called our core body temperature minimum. We have a circadian rhythm, a daily biological rhythm in our body temperature. And so just before we go to bed, if we have a normal routine and a healthy predictable sleep window, then we fall asleep just after our body temperature has reached its 24-hour peak. And from that point on, during the night as we're sleeping, our body temperature continues to go down and it actually reaches its lowest point, we call that the body temperature minimum, about two to three hours before your normal wake-up time. So if you think about this, your core body temperature is going from its 24-hour peak just before you fall asleep and then getting to its lowest point just before you wake up. That's the circadian body temperature rhythm. And that body temperature minimum is really important. That point is phase locked, if you will. It's timed to coincide with the peak in REM sleep. And that's really important because if you're a shift worker, for example, and you've got to be up and working during this core body temperature minimum, it's what we call a fatigue risk danger zone because your brain is pre-programmed, as I said, for REM sleep at that time. But if you're awake and you're fatigued, that's a time when your brain is not going to be able to do safety critical tasks well. Vigilance is not going to be at its peak your ability to attend to things is going to be dramatically impaired at that time. And so what you also get at that time is what we call sleep intrusions. These are involuntary. It's where the brain literally is so exhausted, it reboots. And for that brief period of time, you know, the lights may be on, but nobody's home, if you will. Your eyes might be open and you may look like you're there, but the truth is, is that you lack all situational awareness at that time. And these are brief bouts where you literally fall asleep on your feet. And so that's a key time. And it's phase locked, if you will. It's synchronized to this peak in REM sleep. And so when we're looking at the sleep architecture, getting back to that for a moment, the front half is all about restoration and repair. And then the back half is really about consolidation of learning and memory, processing trauma, and you know building resilience, all of those kinds of things. We do coaching and a key part of this training program that we do is helping people understand the need to build their sleep window, protect that sleep window so that sleep can fill it with the proper sleep architecture. That's the key. So I want to touch back on that as it relates to emergency service workers. I guess this will all tie in. I want to touch back first on Alzheimer's. You mentioned 
poor sleep can increase cognitive aging, the speed of that can lead to or exacerbate the possibility of Alzheimer's setting in. And then once Alzheimer's is present, then that hijacks your circadian rhythms and that's what's continuing to upset your sleep. Yes. And let's just take a moment to discuss that for a second, because there's a bi-directional relationship. What I mean by that is that there's this vicious cycle that happens. So, uh, and this, again, the things that we're talking about here since 2013, we've really got a much better understanding of these mechanisms and what's driving the problem here in, in terms of the relationship between poor sleep health and Alzheimer's disease. So let's unpack this for a second. So the first thing is that As I had said earlier, the brain's just like an engine, so it's producing exhaust during the day. And this exhaust is building up around the neurons. And these neurons are all part of networks, and they communicate with each other. And so when you've got a neuron that is choked off by this waste, this exhaust that hasn't been washed away, when that happens, the neuron's no longer able to play well with others, and the brain gets a signal that this neuron isn't functioning right, and so it has processes that then target and remove that neuron from the network. And so in the beginning, there's lots of multiple redundancies, so losing one neuron isn't the end of the world. But when this process is allowed to propagate over decades, what ends up happening is that you no longer have that backup. And so each neuron lost is losing the functional. And so that's the key, that this is bidirectional. The area of the brain that's impacted first in this decades-long process is the frontal cortex, the prefrontal cortex in particular. What you can think of is this exhaust that's building up. It starts in the front of the brain, and it's like a tsunami that moves its way backward. And so for each night that you're getting, let's say, an hour less than what you're supposed to, current guidelines, these are world experts now that agree that the current guidelines are that everybody needs seven to nine hours of actual sleep each night. And so if you're not getting that, let's quantify that for a second. Let's say that you go three successive nights with an hour less than what you're supposed to get. Three successive nights is the same as actually having skipped an entire night's sleep and pulling an all-nighter. In terms of cognitive impacts, we know this to be true now. And so what happens is that you're missing the opportunity to wash away the day's waste. And so you're starting each successive day with a accumulation of toxicity. And what happens over time is that those neurons that have been incapacitated by this sleep debt, it turns out those neurons are actually the same neurons that drive deep, slow-wave sleep. And remember that slow-wave sleep is the sleep that washes the brain. So you're accumulating toxicity around the neurons that actually drive the slow-wave sleep that washes those neurons. The key there is that what you have is this vicious cycle where you don't get the sleep you need to wash your brain. The waste accumulates in the areas that drive slow-wave sleep that is intended or that its function is to wash the brain. And so over time, that process accelerates. So again, the brain is remarkably complex. It's able to compensate for decades. But make no mistake, in your young adult years, the habits that you have in terms of your sleep health, if you aren't getting the sleep you need, if your way of going about life is, I'm too busy and I'll sleep when I'm dead, 
the truth is, is that you're going to end up with the longest sleep much sooner than you were expecting. Because what you're doing when you don't sleep in your younger years is you're borrowing from both your health and your productivity in the retirement years. That's essentially what you're doing. You're taking away from your healthy retirement. And at CRS, our mission is to change the way our society prioritizes sleep. And then having done that, our next mission statement is really to help people improve their sleep health. The first thing you have to do is get people to understand how important it is to protect their sleep health. And then the second thing you need to do is actually, once they are motivated to do so, is to give them the tools to actually improve their sleep health. It may sound simple, but that's a key thing that isn't being done right now. There are a lot of people that know they're not getting the sleep they need, but they aren't doing anything because they don't know what they need to do to improve their sleep. And that's what CRS does. My life's work is helping people fix their sleep issues. When you mentioned that you're borrowing time from yourself or quality of time from yourself later in your life and that whole idea of sleeping when you're dead people would make the argument that well it's inevitable that my quality of life isn't going to be good when i'm older so i might as well enjoy my life while i'm young whereas like we said briefly in the beginning you can have a high quality of performance in your elder years so if you believe that and feel that and know that then probably you'll plan a bit better for longer you're absolutely right so Here's the issue. The first thing that a person needs to be able to do is to place a value on a future event, right? To understand the importance of their actions today in terms of their future. And many people lack the capacity to really accurately value the future. We have this inability to delay gratification. We want the happiness now and we'll deal with the consequences later. An interesting thing about that is that sleep has an impact on our ability to make those decisions. We've been talking about how the brain's like an engine, it's producing exhaust, and that exhaust builds up at the front of the brain first. And I talked about how that part of the brain is really important for driving slow-wave sleep that washes the brain. But the other thing that that part of the brain does, the prefrontal cortex, is it is the CEO of the brain, if you will. It's the you know reason, decision-making, the ability to weigh risk versus reward or cost versus benefit. All of that kind of planning out actions and figuring out the future consequences of decisions made right now. All of that is really sensitive to sleep debt. When we are sleep deprived chronically, when we're getting an hour short of sleep each night, it impairs the CEO's ability to actually impact these decisions. So what we know, and this is consensus science again, think of it as these gas pedals in the brain, okay? So one gas pedal is the emotional reactivity to our environment and how we respond to stressors and anger management. That emotional center of the brain, you know, simplifying here, but let's call that the amygdala, that's the emotional center of the brain and it's a gas pedal. The CEO, the prefrontal cortex, is the brake pedal that can manage those emotions and handle the stressors and the emotional reactivity. An important relationship. And when we're sleep deprived, it's like having a car that's all gas pedal and no brake. So that's one. The other is looking at our adrenaline seeking or risk seeking behavior. Think of it as our reward center of the brain. 
another gas pedal. And so when we're sleep deprived, we lack the ability to make the right decisions. And we tend to overestimate the benefits of a given decision and underestimate the costs. Or think of it in another way, we overestimate reward and underestimate risk. And we see this play out in the world where sleep-deprived individuals will make incorrect decisions because they just simply were not able to address properly the risk-reward analysis. What you've been talking about with missing an hour of sleep a night or more, I don't think we've used the actual term people have heard, probably sleep debt, um, and if that's actually a thing. And then jumping off of that, can you make up for poor sleeps? I guess, how much can you get away with? Is the damage you mentioned done and you can't undo it? Uh, Is it akin to saying, well, I'll protect my hearing next week? Yeah, it's a great question. And it doesn't have a simple answer. Let's first start with an understanding of sleep debt. We need at least seven hours of actual sleep each night. So as you had said, you know, general rule of thumb, in order to get seven hours actual, you need to have a sleep window that's roughly about eight hours. And most people, and we know this from epidemiological studies around the world, our society has changed. And we are getting less sleep than at any other time in our history. Technology plays a role. Our schedules play a role. But the simple fact is that sleep is the first thing we sacrifice to meet the growing demands of work, family, and social life balance. So instead of getting an eight-hour sleep window and getting seven hours actual, now we're getting a sleep window of, let's say, seven hours and we're getting, and this is just for the general population, somewhere in the neighborhood of six to six and a half hours of actual sleep each night. For shift workers, you can subtract another hour. You can say that they're getting somewhere in the neighborhood of five to five and a half hours of actual sleep each night. That's just the reality. For most people in our society now, we are accumulating a sleep debt each night, not getting enough sleep. And really, the first thing is to get people to prioritize sleep and understand that if you want to be elite at whatever domain you've chosen for yourself, you need to first become an elite sleeper. And the reason for that is because sleep has an impact in every aspect of human health and performance. So that's the very first thing. We're not getting enough sleep each night, and sleep debt is real. So first thing, we know we're not getting enough sleep, and we need to change that. The other thing is to understand what that impact is. So we know that if you're getting less than seven hours of actual sleep each night, that you are accelerating aging in terms of all of the diseases of aging. So you can tick every box, cardiovascular disease, obesity, type 2 diabetes, cancer, dementia, all of them. The risk of those diseases increases dramatically as a function of chronic sleep debt. And this is a key driver. We know that shift workers, for example, are at increased risk of all of these diseases. And in 2010, the World Health Organization, after a thorough review of the science, determined that shift work results in circadian dysregulation. Think of it as turning your nights into days and your days into nights. When you do that, you're disrupting circadian rhythms, and that results in poor sleep health, which is a driver of all of these disease risk. And so, again, in 2010, 
World Health Organization determined that shift work that causes circadian dysregulation causes cancer. That's a key, you know, statement is that we know that if you're doing shift work, that you're at increased risk of cancer. And by the way, you're at increased risk of cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes, dementia, all of these things. And so given that we know that there's this increased risk for shift workers, then there needs to be an emphasis on mitigating the risk. Consensus science now, the key to mitigating that risk is to promote stronger circadian regulation. So that's why we developed our course, Surviving Shift Work. It's designed specifically to address circadian regulation for older adults and shift workers. Why both of those groups? Because older adults become shift workers involuntarily. They are able to fall asleep and stay asleep for a few hours, but then they wake up and they can't get back to sleep. So you can think of them as a split shift worker in terms of their sleep. They'll sleep for a bit and then they'll be up for a bit and then they'll get back to sleep for a bit. But overall, they're disrupting their circadian rhythms and they're disrupting the sleep architecture and the sleep staging. So they end up with the same challenge, the same problem that shift workers do. And so the key is to promote stronger circadian regulation while at the same time working within a shift system. Promote strong circadian rhythms, build the sleep window, protect that sleep window so that sleep can fill it. We don't have a choice or any control during our work shifts. Now, to lay on top of that, many emergency service workers, either out of necessity financially or purely out of choice, for financial reasons, will then part-time on top of their work. So you're leaving work on little sleep, part-timing all day, and coming back in and doing it all over again, and many, many times throughout each month. So you already mentioned that there's phases that we can wake up during and have to be in emergency situations, and we're not going to be at our sharpest. And coming in sleep-deprived adds on to that reality. And Truthfully, I guess it puts yourself at risk. It puts your colleagues and those you are responding to at risk. And especially if you're driving that night, also the people that you're on the road with on the way to and back from the call. Yeah. So let's unpack that for a bit. So the first thing, it's a natural benefit of the shift work system. So let's let's just use one example where a shift system of, say, two 12-hour days, two 12-hour nights, and then four off. So the real benefit of that shift system is that it gives you four straight days off, and that's giving people the opportunity to work a part-time job on those four offs. Now, the issue is that it's exactly what you just said. You really do need to pay off that sleep debt because if you aren't protecting your sleep, you're accumulating a sleep debt. And it's one of those things where think of it as a slow descending fog. So you don't notice if it's rolling in slow enough, each change in that visibility, if you will, is so gradual that you see it as a new normal. So for a lot of people, they think they're functioning well on, say, four to five hours sleep. In fact, if they actually try to sleep longer, they can't or they don't feel as well after trying to get a longer sleep. They think they're doing really well. They think that they're operating best on about four to five hours sleep. But what they're not aware of is they are using up their resources, the brain's ability to compensate. 
what it's driving is something called sympathetic nervous system overdrive. So when we are sleep deprived, we engage our sympathetic fight or flight response. And so we are engaging that system. And that system is intended for brief periods of superhuman performance. But when we are chronically sleep depriving ourselves, we're actually engaging that system chronically. And so what happens is that it accelerates aging. It causes all of the things that we've been talking about in terms of our overall mental and physical health. It accelerates aging so that we are dramatically borrowing from our future. The problem is that we just lack the self-awareness of it. We don't know the damage we're doing. And we actually think that we're only making this choice to do this behavior and it's only affecting us. When in reality, it affects our family now and in the future, it affects our colleagues now and in the future, and again, it affects our community now and in the future. A hundred percent. So let's get back to that whole gas pedal, brake pedal conversation, right? So the prefrontal cortex is the brake pedal that manages our emotions and it manages our risk-taking behavior. And so what you have when you're chronically sleep-deprived is an overly emotional individual that has difficulty with anger management, is going to be irritable. Things that wouldn't normally bother them are going to begin to bother them. It affects the family dynamic. It affects the dynamic within the workforce and with other co-workers. The ability to cope with stress and trauma is impaired when we're sleep deprived. And you talk about the first responder group, they face more trauma in a given month's worth of shifts, if you will, than most of us will face in an entire lifetime. And so if there was one group that needed to have the absolute most in terms of their ability to cope with stress, it's got to be the first responder group. And yet, when you look at the sleep of the first responder group, it's among the worst in society. And so we are not doing what we need to do to protect their sleep and build their resilience to trauma. I was in research and did a postdoctoral fellowship at UBC, and my plan was really to continue doing research and become faculty and be an academic for my career. And the thing was, is that what I realized over time, it took me a long time to figure this out, but in academia, our role is to produce science, to publish. That's what you're compensated for. Do the science and publish it. But in terms of actually translating that science and getting it into the hands of the people that funded it, the taxpayer, the people that need that science, we don't really have a mechanism. So, you know, researchers are not compensated for going around and translating that science for the public. And so for myself personally, my passion was in doing that translation in getting out into the community and helping people understand sleep science in a way that they could apply it to their lives and actually improve their sleep health. But as an academic, I'm not paid to do that. And so there was a real crisis for me when I realized that, you know, I've worked for 20 plus years along a career path and then suddenly realized that it wasn't what I really wanted to do. What I wanted to do was go out and teach people how to sleep better and translate the science for the public. And so I had to reach this fork in the road, if you will, where it was, okay, I need to become a sleep coach. I need to go out and dedicate myself to helping people 
use this science that we already know. And that's the key message here. We already know enough to change people's sleep health now. Research needs to be done and continue to improve the techniques and understand the mechanisms better. But that's not at the expense of taking action now. We know enough to improve sleep health today. In fact, for the last seven years, that's what CRS has been doing. We have training programs and we have objective data showing that we can improve and sustain sleep health for shift workers and older adults. The thing that is holding us back now is that we just haven't been able to get that message out effectively enough for people to access those resources. What comes to mind when I hear you say that is time and time again, for years, every time the news is on and there's a health line portion, or anytime you open a magazine and, and you're flipping through it, anything you're scrolling on on social media, there's going to be something about don't smoke, eat better, get exercise, get some sleep. People know by rote these things that they quote unquote should do for themselves in their daily lives and they don't. And really, I think we're seeing maybe a shift with better eating habits and more exercise, especially with the younger generations, seeing them coming to the fire service now. But that's after how many decades of consistent messaging of the same thing. So perhaps that's what this is now, where it needs to be this constant hammering over the head of how important this is before it finally starts to click. When I first started doing these community engagements, where I would go out and speak to older adults, retired people, as well as different events, shift workers, I was sounding the alarm and saying, hey, sleep changes as we get older and we need to protect our sleep. And it was interesting because the health professionals in the room in the beginning would come up to me and say, Glenn, we really appreciate what you're trying to do here, but you've got to stop. You can't be telling people that they need to get more sleep because you're scaring them. It creates anxiety. You're making people worry about the fact they're not getting enough sleep. And if you make people worry, they won't be able to get the sleep they need. That was so frustrating for me because these are well-meaning health professionals. They were really trying to do this harm reduction strategy but that's a head in the sand kind of approach, right? The answer isn't to not tell people that they need better sleep. The answer is to add the second step, tell people that they need better sleep and then give them solutions to improve their sleep health. And that was the thing that was really missing is that we didn't understand in the first 20 years. Our toolkit was rather limited. We, we had sleep hygiene and you talked about how there's no shortage of information on the internet. And if you go and you Google sleep health or sleep problems, there's tons of information out there on sleep hygiene. And we all know the things that we need to do, right? You said it. We need to eat right. We need to exercise and we need to get lots of sleep. Those are the what's. But what's missing is understanding it's not just what you do that matters. It's when you do it that matters as much or more because it's about circadian rhythms. It's about daily biological rhythms, daytime physiology, biology, and behavior, and nighttime physiology, biology, and behavior. And we need to understand that those things have to be kept separate in time because they're incompatible processes. In terms of our sleep health, 
It's not like you could just snap your fingers and say, okay, this is the time that I have scheduled. This is my time for sleep. And you're going to be able to fall asleep and just get the sleep you need. The truth is, is that your brain and your body need to be prepared for sleep at the time that you've scheduled to sleep in order to get the proper sleep architecture. It takes training. This is why we have the training program that's available online that's called Surviving Shift Work, and it takes people through so that they understand the sleep science as it applies to them so that they can actually build a sleep window, protect that sleep window, and then sleep will fill it. As first responders, I would think we would have many sleep windows, especially around maybe a more compressed shift schedule. So if a first responder could live in a utopia, what would their ideal recovery sleep schedule look like? And then maybe we can talk about the reality is that there's other demands such as kids and elderly parents, financial struggles. What's the best they could do under those pressures and needs? Like, or how could they start taking step one, step two to gradually get them towards the best that they can do if they can't reach the ideal? I appreciate the question. But the truth is, is that in a podcast like this, it's just not possible to provide all of the information that a person needs to be able to do that. That's why we have Surviving Shift Work, this training program. It's 10 lessons and it takes them through in a stepwise fashion to understand all of these things. I can't give you a simple answer that would solve that issue for a shift worker, but here's what I will tell you. So the very first thing to understand is that when you're working a shift system that requires you to work at night sometimes and then during the day at others, that means that there's going to be this shifting schedule in terms of your sleep. And so it is this perpetual shift, turning your days into nights and your nights into days that causes circadian dysregulation. That is the issue. So the answer, the strategy to be able to fix this is to anchor your circadian rhythms to the day while at the same time still doing that shift system. In order to get the answer to this, you have to really take the time. I'm not asking for people to take a lot of their time though. Like this program is six and a half hours. To do the 10 lessons, it takes six and a half hours of your time. It's available on demand, so you can do it whenever you're ready and available. But you have to take the time to go through the course and understand the science. That provides people with the language they need to know in order to be able to address their sleep health. The objective is to take the circadian shift out of the shift work. And so it has to do with time cues. It has to do with managing our light exposure profile, our meal schedules, our physical activity profile, all of these things in terms of working the shift system while at the same time anchoring our circadian physiology so that day is day and night is night, even though we're on shift. The short answer is that there is a way to do it. It just requires an understanding of the science and being able to apply it to your own personal lived experience. Because as you said, you could have a 100 shift workers on the exact same pattern, the exact same shift system, let's say two days, two nights, four off. But none of them are going to have the same circadian issues because they all have different schedules outside of work. Some have families. 
young children, for example, all of these things have an impact on your sleep schedule and your circadian rhythm. So you need to maybe not become an expert, but you need to understand the sleep science to a level that you can apply it to your lived experience and get the sleep health that you need and you deserve. There is no shortcut. There isn't a pill you can take. There isn't a simple podcast that you could listen to that's going to give you the answers you need. You've got to take the time and invest the time to do the course and understand the sleep science and then apply it to your your shift system. And remember, the shift system is unique to you because what you do when you're not at work has an impact on that shift system. So segueing off of you mentioning shift systems, uh, it's common in emergency services for people to talk about what the best shift for us to be on would be. Is it fair to say that they're all detrimental in their own ways? And then it's really just about, like you said, structuring your days off to recover properly. Scheduling when you sleep, that's a key. You need to sleep at a time when your brain and your body is prepared to use that sleep properly. To talk about shift systems, I get that question all the time. And I think you've just put it best. By definition, a shift system requires us to turn our nights into days and our days into nights. So they all are a challenge to anchoring to the day. The answer to your question is that the best shift system is the one that allows an individual to anchor their circadian rhythms to the day so that they can take the circadian shift out of the shift work. At CRS, our objective is not to promote one shift system over another. You have whatever was collectively bargained. That's the shift system you have. Our job is to work with you within that shift system and to help you take the circadian shift out of that shift system. And again, keep in mind that whatever shift system was part of the work schedule, you are adding layers of complexity with your demands of work, family, and social life balance. So that is the thing to take away. You're absolutely right. There's no perfect shift system. What you need to do is understand the science, apply it to your lived experience, and take the circadian shifting out of that shift system. And in order to do that, you have to do the time in learning the science and studying it. And the good news is it's available. It's available on demand. Anybody that wants it can do it. And we have incredible results. Just the other day, we had a person saying they haven't slept this well in decades because they just didn't know what they were doing was actually taking away from their sleep or that they weren't scheduling their sleep properly. It is possible to do the things that you want to do and do it better by sleeping more. The truth is, is that we have a bunch of sleep deprived people out there that are thinking that they're working harder, but they're not working smarter. They're not getting as much done as they could in a given amount of time because they're just nowhere near as productive because they're operating in a fog. I work with first responders, but I also work with pilots. And I had a client, a pilot that was going through some training and was not meeting the training expectations and was not going to succeed in that course. His wife had heard of our training program, so he reached out and took our training. And the thing that warms my heart, you know, he said that he knew the program had worked when his instructor turned to him and said, I don't know what you did, 
But something's changed because your situational awareness is so much better now than it was before. And you're able to meet the mission objectives easily now and you couldn't before. And what my client said is pilots talk about fog and visibility. And he said it was as though the fog had lifted and he could suddenly see clearly. And that's sleep debt. If we are chronically sleep deprived, we just simply are not at our best. Yeah, I use the phrase when speaking about mental health is that you don't know how much better you can feel until you start actually feeling better. And then you have this new awakening of, oh, this is what I can actually feel like. And then you have something to, like you said, protect and fight for because you don't want to let it go. But if you've never known a different state of being, you don't know that you can make the change and then you're not personally invested to try and get there. You couldn't be more right about what you're saying there. So I often say that sleep health is a gateway, if you will, to other lifestyle change. And the reason for that is that when we get the sleep we need, our CEO is brought back online and it functions properly. And so with a better CEO, we're able to make better decisions. So let me give you a clear example. We know this in the shift worker community. Very often, we have a tendency to blame the individual for their decisions. So you'll look at someone that's overweight, has type 2 diabetes, and you say, well, buddy, you're eating lasagna and potato chips and you're drinking too much beer. You've got to make better decisions for yourself. And what people don't realize is that when we're sleep deprived, it changes the types of food we crave. And it also changes how much of that food we crave. It's hardwired. This gets back to the sympathetic nervous system overdrive. When you are going beyond our natural limits, so to get back to this, we are programmed for a 16-hour waking day and then an eight-hour sleep window to restore health. When we go beyond that program limit of 16 hours, we are engaging our fight or flight response. And so we're going into overdrive. And so what happens is the system that's tired actually sends a hunger signal and says, hey, if you're going to work me extra time, then you've got to feed me. You need sleep. You're tired. But the signal that you experience is a hunger signal. And not only are you hungry for more food than you would otherwise eat, but you are going to change what you're craving. And you're going to crave the high carb, high fat, dense foods to get you through the emergency. But the thing is, is that it isn't a single one-off emergency. It's a chronic situation, which drives obesity and type 2 diabetes. So the point that I'm trying to get at here is that we have a tendency to blame people for their decisions without understanding that chronic sleep debt is driving some of those poor decisions. If we address sleep health, we wash the brain and we end up with a properly functioning CEO of the brain, it will make that brake pedal will function with the gas pedals that are emotional reactivity and you know risk-taking behaviors. So it's important for us to understand that addressing sleep health is the beginning to then having people make better decisions in terms of their exercise and what they eat. Touch on for me a little bit about sleep meds. Are they a good interim solution? Would they help people reset their internal clocks, their circadian rhythms? Are there people that need sleep meds 
for the rest of their lives, like another medication? Maybe you can just expand on those for me. Okay. So that's a really important question, Scott. So in order to address that, I need to introduce a concept called the sleep accountant. So the sleep accountant, that's just my way of describing it. The sleep accountant's job is to look at our previous sleep-wake history and determine the sleep we need. And it's important to understand that no two days are the same. Some days are physically taxing. Other days are emotionally taxing, stressful. Some days have a ton of new learning. Other days there may have been trauma that was experienced. So no two days are the same. And what that means is that no two nights sleep need is the same either. And this sleep accountant's job is a tricky one because the sleep accountant needs to take the sleep window that you've allotted at the time that you've allotted it and try to balance those books. And it does so in terms of scheduling and sequencing the different sleep stages, deep, light, and REM. And so that sleep accountant needs to be able to drive the sleep architecture in precisely the way that's needed to pay off your sleep debt. And you had asked a question earlier that we didn't really address, which is, is it possible to pay back the sleep debt? If you've had this history of not getting enough sleep, can you pay off the debt? And I had said, it's a tricky answer because there are parts that you can pay off. For example, you know that washing the brain, we know that if you protect your sleep, that over time you can wash your brain and you can get to a better state of health. But there's so many other things that sleep does. Remember consolidating learning and memory, processing trauma. So there are things, let's be clear, if you haven't been protecting your sleep, it's never too late to actually address this. It's never too late to improve your sleep health so that you can improve your retirement. That's a fact. What you can't get back though is the learning lost. Let's talk about an athlete for a moment. It used to be that we had this notion that practice makes perfect. And then the science has evolved to the point where understanding biomechanics and things like that, we learned that it was actually perfect practice that makes perfect. And so that became the new mantra, if you will, in the athlete community. But what they're missing on that is that it's actually sleep in advance of new learning plus the new learning plus sleep afterwards. So in other words, in order to strive for that perfection, what you need to do is come into the new learning event with a well-slept brain. Then you need to do the job of really working on the mechanics. And then after having done that, you then have to have a well-slept brain to consolidate that learning and memory. So sleep health in advance of new learning sets the stage for that new learning to be impactful. And then sleep health after that new learning consolidates it and makes it permanent. The point that I'm trying to get at here is that there are aspects of our sleep health that we can pay back. But there are others that are lost. And so cramming for an exam, for example, when we cram for an exam, we don't get the sleep we need. We then get that information into our system and we pass our exam. But we don't have that long-term knowledge. It's as though it was acquired and lost very quickly. It's only when we get good sleep, then study, and then get good sleep that we are able to take that knowledge and apply it long-term. I think it's important for people to understand just the nature of this sleep accountant and what its job is and how it balances those books. And to get to your question, 
having that understanding of the sleep accountant. When you take drugs, whether it's alcohol, Zopiclone, sleep aids that are prescription sleep aids, when you take drugs to get to sleep, what you're doing is you're inducing what we would call a pharmacological sleep. You are getting a drug-induced sleep, but it's not the sleep that the sleep accountant can use to actually pay off the sleep debt. Because no matter what drug, if it's inducing a particular stage of sleep, let's say that a drug will promote deep sleep. Well, you can't be in deep sleep at the same time as being in REM sleep. So when you promote deep, you're inhibiting REM sleep. Conversely, say that you're on an antidepressant, for example, that promotes REM sleep. Well, you're going to get a ton of REM, but it's going to inhibit how much deep sleep you get. So what I'm trying to communicate here is that the drugs you take to get sleep will actually alter your sleep architecture so that over time, long term, you are going to be sleep deprived because you are going to be promoting one stage of sleep at the expense of another stage of sleep. And let's be clear, you need all of those stages to reach optimal health and performance. So the answer to your question is that if you are taking sleep aids chronically, then you are in fact sleep depriving yourself. And to be clear, this is consensus science now. We know that, for example, 18 doses of a sleep aid, say like Zopiclone, for example, 18 doses in a calendar year increase all-cause mortality threefold. It's just a function of when you take these drugs long-term, you're chronically sleep-depriving yourself of these other stages of sleep. And so you're accumulating a sleep debt. So my answer to your question is, Sleep aids are not a long-term solution, but improved circadian regulation is. So you can't take a pill. That's what I'm trying to tell you. These meds, there is a time to take those meds, but you'll know even when you look at the manufacturer's guidelines, they tell you that this is intended for short-term use, seven to 10 days, not more than that. The issue is that we're using these sleep aids to allay our concern that we're not getting enough sleep. Our experience of it is that I take the drug and I fall asleep, so that's got to be good. If I don't take the drug, I can't fall asleep, so that's got to be bad. And what they're not addressing is that you need to improve and rectify the underlying cause of the insomnia, whatever it is that's driving this poor sleep. And in the case of shift workers, it's circadian dysregulation. It's Trying to sleep at a time when the brain and body isn't ready for sleep that is driving the poor sleep health. And then not sleeping when the brain and body is ready for sleep. So it's all about timing, proper scheduling, and it's entirely possible to work a shift system, to work days and nights, and still be able to get the sleep health you need. It's just a matter of understanding the sleep science and how that sleep science applies to your schedule and your shift work. Would it be fair to say that to get back on track, to get where you need to be, it would be best to block out a certain number of days, almost like a vacation, and dedicate that to putting in practice these things that you could spend the time learning it, you have the information now, but how many days, a week, two weeks, it might be different for everybody. So that's an awesome question. In our experience, 
And we now have, you know, over seven years of working with both shift workers and older adults. In our experience, um, once they've completed the course, once they begin applying it, it takes four to six weeks to see improved sleep health. Results vary on a few things like the individual's history, as well as their ability to apply the science. Compliance matters. The ability to take the tools and strategies and apply them to their lives matter. But when people do that, what we found is that within four to six weeks, you see improved sleep health. And by the 12-week mark, they graduate out of the program and they're able to sustain their own sleep health. Our training program, think of it as a train-the-trainer model. Our training program is really you take the course to learn the science and then that course becomes the language that we use to coach individuals to become their own sleep coach. That's essentially what happens. And by 12 weeks, they've graduated out and they're able to sustain their own sleep health. So it may not be as quickly as you were hoping. It's not like take a pill and sleep better immediately. There is this process of rebuilding, promoting stronger circadian rhythms and being able to get them working again. And so it is a function of, you know, just how long they've been suppressed and how long it takes to bounce back. But I can tell you, when I was at UBC, we did a program with retirement community called Tapestry. And the average age of the participants in that were 88. And they were still able to address their sleep health and improve their cognitive functioning. So it's never too late. It is a matter of time. And in that example, it took six weeks. But we saw that by the six-week mark. And I would guess that just like with starting an exercise program, you feel crappy the way you are right now. And you would feel better. You will feel better if you put the time in. But in a sense, it's going to get worse before it gets better. You're going to exercise those first couple weeks and you're going to be sore. It's going to be hard. You're going to hate it. But if you stick to it, eventually it gets better. Yeah. So that's a great question. And this is actually, if you recall, I had said that uh, sleep health is a gateway to other lifestyle change because in my experience, it hasn't been that way. What you're describing is, you know, no pain, no gain. You know, you got to go through the pain to get the gain. And certainly that's true when you're talking about building muscle mass and things like that. But in terms of your sleep health, the really nice thing about it is that you've got this debt. And so you've got this fog that you're dealing with in terms of your overall physical and mental health. And when you begin the process of getting better sleep, you actually feel better almost immediately. So there isn't this, you have to fight through the pain in order to get to the gain in terms of our sleep health. But what I would say, though, is that in terms of the science and the knowledge that's required, it's really quite simple. But application is not easy. So learning what you need to do, that's easy. Doing those things is the harder part. But the great thing about sleep health is that when you actually commit to doing those things and you get those things working for you, it becomes a virtuous cycle in the sense that you start sleeping better, you start feeling better. And because of that, that motivates you to work even harder to improve your sleep health. And that's why the interventions that we do are a stepwise intervention. First, you take the course and you learn the science and then we address the low-hanging fruit, if you will. We make changes that are easy at first that then 
result in greater motivation and compliance to do the harder things. We've had this training program for over seven years now, and you know it's become refined. And again, it's all evidence-based. So you know this science has been in the making for decades. So the short answer to your question is, it isn't a situation where you end up with poorer sleep before you get better sleep. That isn't the situation. You do the things that are needed and you will see the improvements in that sleep, which will actually result in you feeling better and more motivated to continue through the intervention. More of a linear upward trajectory. It's more linear in that respect, but there are these peaks in performance that you get you have three, four nights where you sleep really well and then you have a bad night and you're like, oh man, I've fallen off. But I'll get somebody to send me an email and their email will say, Glenn, I just had the best sleep I've had in decades. I went to bed and I slept for eight hours and I didn't have any difficulty. And I can't remember the last time I had that. So it's this realization that the biology is still there. The, the mechanisms required, they're still functioning. They still work. The neurons that drive this are still there and work. It's just a function of giving the environment. You know, the sleep accountant, it's still working. It's just that you haven't given it sleep window the sleep accountant needs to balance the books. And your brain, your brain and your body know how to do this. You're just getting in the way. Yes, exactly. Yeah, thank you for that. That's the best way to say it is that we just don't know what's needed to create the environment. And let me be very clear. It's much, much more than just simple sleep hygiene. This is this is why I don't really use the language of sleep hygiene because everybody's tried it. They know that light at night is bad and they know they shouldn't drink alcohol before bed. They know all of these things and they try. And to be honest with you, the people that get the most out of our program are the people that have tried everything and failed. And so then when they start our program, they're like, this is making a difference. And they're so motivated to do what they need to do. And then they see the results. And instead of that vicious cycle that we talked about with Alzheimer's disease, this is the reverse. It's a virtuous cycle. They're improving their sleep health. And that's resulting in a better brain that is able to make better decisions and all of those things. How can people best find you, communicate with you, find the program? Oh, thank you for asking. So a simple way is just to email me at glenn at elitesleep.ca, which is just Glenn with two N's. So G-L-E-N-N at elitesleep.ca. And then the other way is to go to our website, which is elitesleep.ca. So www.elitesleep.ca, and they can absolutely access our services. I really appreciate your time today. Oh, it's awesome. I thank you for uh, giving me the platform to share the story.